Good morning and welcome to the City Club of Chicago. I'm Anne-Marie St. Germain and I serve on the Board of Governors of the City Club of Chicago and chair the program committee. Today we're taking a look at the evolving landscape of news media in Chicago. Please remember that City Club of Chicago is a 501c3 nonprofit. And while today's program is complimentary, any financial contribution is most welcome. Thank you. Let's welcome our panelists today. Morgan Elise Johnson, Gregory Pratt, and Jan Sabella. Morgan Elise Johnson is a producer and director, an independent filmmaker, and co-founded The Tribe in 2017. The Tribe is a digital publication that is reshaping the narrative of Black Chicago. She's also co-producing Unapologetic, a documentary that examines the contributions of queer femmes at the helm of the movement for Black lives in Chicago. Previously, she was a producer from Milwaukee-based production house 371 Productions, where she co-directed There Are Jews Here in 2015 and produced virtual reality documentary and Sundance Film Festival selection called Cross the Line in 2016. She's a member of the Forbes Media Class of 2019 of 30 Under 30, and she earned a Bachelor of Science in Radio TV Film from Northwestern University and is a native of North Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Morgan. Next we, next we have Gregory Pratt. Gregory was, Greg was raised in Little Village and he covers Mayor Lori Lightfoot and City Hall for the Chicago Tribune. Before joining the Tribune in 2013, he worked at the Better Government Association, as well as alternative weeklies in Phoenix and Minneapolis and OI. He has been a finalist for the Livingston and earned other national honors, including from the National Headliner Awards, the Lysakers and Scripps Howard. He's also chief steward of the Chicago Tribune Guild. Welcome, Greg. Jen Sabella is the director of strategy and the co-founder of Black Club Chicago, a nonprofit news site dedicated to covering Chicago's neighborhoods. Before starting Black Club, Jen was deputy editor and director of social media at DNA Info Chicago, a site she also helped launch in 2012. Before that, she was the HuffPost's Chicago editor and a breaking news reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Jen also co-hosts Girl Talk, a monthly conversation series and podcast that features influential, influential women in Chicago. She's been named among the 10 most powerful women in Chicago journalism by Bob Feeder, a 2019 power player by Chicago Magazine, and one of the Windy City Times 30 under 30, when she actually was under 30. She grew up in Chicago, attended Columbia College Chicago, and Mother Macaulay High School. Welcome, all of our panelists. Uh, today we're going to take a look at the evolving landscape of media, news media in Chicago. And there's certainly no shortage of things to talk about uh, in that regard. Um, let me just kick things off with a question. Um, so how do you see, and, and I address this to each of you, if you, could, if you could just share with our viewers, how do you see the business of media evolving here now and in the future and and what does that mean for the reporting of the news the business reportage uh balance if you will and sometimes it seems a blurred line greg do you want to kick off 
Well, you know, it's a it's a very it's it's sort of a um it's it's a very inconsistent landscape because on the one hand you have some very ambitious, very important uh organizations like the tribe and block club, which are starting up and they're finding new business models that work better for them and for, um, and perhaps, uh, the future of other, of all media outlets someday. And then at the Chicago Tribune, you have a business model that's been in effect for a very long time, which is print newspaper and digital subscribers. The Tribune is trying to boost its digital subscription base, uh, to have more, um, digital subscriptions and to sort of wean its way away from print, which is more expensive and which advertisers are moving against. And then you have the added, uh, which, you know, the Tribune still makes money and the Tribune is still uh, a go-to source for a lot of people. But then you have a more troubling trend, which is the ownership of newspapers by hedge funds. In our case, the worst of all the hedge funds has bought a significant share of the Chicago Tribune's uh, parent, Tribune Publishing, and that's a pretty big problem that that concerns a lot of people at the Tribune because at the same time that we're still continuing to do excellent work, if I do say so myself for the paper, uh, we have a new corporate ownership that doesn't really care. So it's an interesting situation. Uh, Jen, how do you see the business of media evolving and, and what that means for the reporting of news? I think we're all kind of just making it up as we go along, frankly, a lot of us just trying to see the changes. Um, obviously, this has been a wild year that I don't think anyone could have expected. But when we started Block Club, it was sort of we watched what didn't work at DNA Info and we decided and wa- watched what didn't work at the Sun-Times and at the Huffington Post and all the places that all of us were before we started Block Club. And we said, listen, like, let's just go in this as journalists. What do we want to see? What do we hear from readers directly? And when DNA Info was shut down, we, we had an overwhelming response from readers saying, I would have paid for this. Like, you never asked me to pay for this and I would have done it. So we kind of launched with this hybrid model of subscriptions, memberships, and we're a nonprofit. So we get charitable donations and grants from different philanthropies. And I, I think I've always looked at like the public radio model as something that was has really worked for them. And as long as you build that trust and, and keep serving your audience through the reporting and investing in reporting, um, which is why we're a nonprofit, uh, people will come and people will pay for it. So, uh, that's our bet. And so far it's working. Um, we would love to grow faster and would love, you know, a big infusion of cash, but we also love our independence and being um, dependent on our readers versus like, unfortunately a hedge fund or uh, one sole billionaire owner. How about you, Morgan? Well, the tribe is taking a more um, multifaceted approach to uh, business models, meaning we not only see ourselves as a publication, but as a production company. And since I come from a film producing and directing background, that really makes sense for me as a leader and a publisher to be building a production house that can do all types of video services. Um, I think that as a media trend, any company that's only looking at digital media or a dot com or a print service as their bread and butter is going to be in trouble. So I'm looking at, you know, what would it look like to have tribe films? What would it look like to be selling to 
Netflix, you know, like when we build out our plan, it's including um, many, many different types of media because we're not only concerned with reshaping the narrative of, of Black Chicago in terms of just like local reach, we're just looking at how our narratives shaped, period. And it's not only through the news. And we're interested in being influential in many different types of, of content. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these days we have so many choices as consumers in terms of how we consume news, where we look for it. It's become a matter of personal preference and choice. And with so many options and self-selection by individuals, you know, how does how does news unite us or divide us or inform us? And does does it matter? I think it's extremely important, especially this year, um, for news to be informative and to be reactive to what's happening in the world. Um, at Block Club, we started and we were thinking, okay, we're going to cover the neighborhoods, just like we did at DNA Info. We saw success there. We had we built a loyal base of people who could come to us for kind of the smaller stories that weren't covered by TV or the big papers. Um, then coronavirus happened, and our entire plan kind of went out the window, and we were inundated with questions about everything from wearing masks to where to get tested to where to get relief for rent and um, it was just, we completely changed and kind of upended what we were doing as a newsroom and became just super responsive. Um, what can we do? We started a, an afternoon newsletter to answer questions about coronavirus. We did, we just basically fielded emails. We're actually starting a coronavirus hotline um, that allows people to, will allow people to text and call in with their questions. Um, just basically turned into like a public service uh middleman for you know processing information from the state from the city and breaking it down and making it easier for people to understand um so i think it's really important right now that people have trust in their media especially with so much misinformation in the world and we're trying to be there like hey we live here too we're your neighbors here's our sources um we're here to answer your questions we work for you we're not trying to dictate to you what you should care about we're, we're listening to what you do care about Anybody else? Yeah, I definitely like to add on for the tribe. um, We really had to revamp how we even work because we're a small media outfit. We don't have that many uh, staffers. We only have two part-time writers. Um, So we had to figure out how can we get this information out quickly? And for us, that meant we couldn't uh, put out stories at the frequency as a block club shy or a Chicago Tribune, but we did make one page that's like dedicated to coronavirus. And we would put bullet points of just like up, you know, information that people needed to know. So that was like our innovative way of saying like, here's where to go for breaking news. But at the same time, we recognize that we just can't, you know, keep up with the volume of how mi- how much information is out there. So I'm all the time thinking about, you know, what does my great granddaughter need to know? Like, how can we frame these narratives so that Um, they are going to be impactful generations from now. Um, So we're often looking for that kind of niche approach to storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the Chicago Tribune, like everybody, uh, when coronavirus hit, you know, we sort of remade our newsroom on the fly and said, 
okay, you know, um, everybody has a role to play in covering coronavirus. So if you used to cover theaters, theaters are not operating right now, but we're going to get you involved writing obituaries. We're going to get you involved uh, helping out with, with developments as they come through. And it's been really important because um, our job isn't necessarily to, um, you know, we were, we were talking in the question about dividing or bringing people together. Our job is to inform. And I always, uh, our job is to inform and expose wrongdoing. And so there's, that's a pretty big umbrella. Uh, and we, it's just what we try to do. I always think it's unfortunate when you see, um, you know, like like people think that the media has an agenda beyond that um, are often wrong. You know, we're we're all just trying to make sure that we have our pants on at the, you know, and and uh, that we put them on right, and that we're we're out there trying to keep everybody informed. So let me get back to to that comment about embedded in my question about dividing or bringing people together. I mean, that certainly objectivity is still um, desirable, um, but with so many different outlets that have particular points of view, let me frame this a little differently. So I watch Fox News to see what they're saying about an issue. I watch MSNBC, see what they're saying about an issue, and never the, the Twix meet. Um, so, um, so how do we, how do we have a common base of information? How do people who consume news who are interested in what's happening on issues, how do we have that common source, if you will, of facts and information? Well, ideally, I don't know if this is super controversial or uh, why we're all kind of pausing, but I ideally everybody would would read a wide variety of things. I would discourage people from aside from dipping in to see what how things are being covered for a minute or two on uh, cable news. I would highly discourage people from watching cable news. Uh, you know, I think I think it's bad for people's brains actually. Um, but the and it, you know. Um, Except in times of actual emergency, it's not really news. It's it's a it's a thing aimed at um, keeping you watching and and uh, you know um, appealing to whatever they think your biases are. But ideally, everybody should be um, reading a variety of things. And you know, one of the things that it, that are important is is you know the tribe does cover things that the Tribune doesn't cover sometimes. Uh, and I, th- I think we're getting better at it, but we we work on trying to cover things. Block Club covers things that we don't do, um, and vice versa. You know, because every everything has its role, and and what everybody has a mission that they're trying to cover. So I think people should be trying to read far more than they do, and I think it's an unfortunate trend in society where people only want to read stuff that confirms something that they think they already know, oftentimes uh, incorrectly. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the tribe, we came out the gate in resistance to the dominant narrative of Black Chicago being that we are just a violent community and an example of failed democratic policies. Um, so since we came into this media landscape with a mission, um, the 
the idea of objectivity is is not a part of like what we do. Um, and I just want to be very clear that objectivity is a lie. Um, media has always been told from the point of view of the the people in power, okay, which has been like white patriarchal society. So um, the news has never been like bilingual, for instance, it, it hasn't covered like every language, we can't even like reach every community or speak everybody's language. So it's like, impossible for us to cover every single point of view. So if we could just educate the public on how to have a media diet and how to be a uh, critical thinkers when they are consuming media, I think that will go a long way. And the tribe does also do a lot of that work. Um, a lot of, of our mission is about um, community outreach, being out in the community um, to, to give to community, not just to extract, right? Because oftentimes when, when the media comes into a community, it is to take from a community, to take somebody's likeness, to take an interview, to take their time. Um, and then we put up a paywall and say, hey, pay for, to read the story. So we come into the landscape saying, like we are going to reshape the narrative of Black Chicago because Black Chicago's narrative is not what, um, the multifaceted essence of Black Chicago is not what's communicated in the media. So when you come to the tribe, that's what you should expect. And that doesn't mean that our stories are not accurate, but we're saying we're going to tell deeper, more thoughtful stories that have this particular focus. Okay. And, and we need the landscape of Chicago to be as diverse of it as it is in terms of media, because we know that we don't have to get to a story quickly because a tribe, a Chicago Tribune or a Black Club Shy is going to have the story up before we can blink. But that gives us the opportunity to sit back and do what I said that I do, which is think about what my great granddaughter needs in terms of this narrative. And so we're going to go and we're going to deepen it. And that's because we have that focus. Jen, thoughts? I agree with Morgan here on the objectivity. Um, it, we all have a point of view and there's been a myth in media for a long time that people don't have a point of view, but we all you know, come from our own lived experiences and you right. can erase your lived experience when you're reporting a story. Um, I think that I, I mean, I came up in newsrooms run by white men, all of them. Uh, so it was their prerogative to say whether something was objective or not. And that's according to their life experience it's not doesn't say anything about me i'm a, a queer woman i you know it's it was i got a lot of grief early on in my career for being like i'm gay i hope to marry my wife like is that political um i mean yeah if gay marriage wasn't legal i couldn't marry my wife until a few years ago because gay marriage wasn't legal but i'm not going to pretend that that is not important to me in my life and i think when you're talking about somebody's civil rights there's a difference between advocating for like a political candidate and advocating for somebody's uh, allowing someone to exist in a safe society so i think that there's a lot of uh confusion just by the way media has been for so many years uh dominated the narrative has been dominated by white men um and i so pleased that in Chicago, we have such a diverse media landscape right now. We have a lot of people doing really cool stuff and, you know, bringing more voices to the table. I think that with our reporters, we kind of have it flipped on its head where our reporters will pitch their stories 
from the neighborhoods every day. They live there. They're the ones talking to neighbors. We want them to set the tone, not an editor in a downtown office. So I think that that's really important and it's super cool. And you, you don't find this in a lot of other cities and we're really lucky to have such a robust media. And I really hope Alden doesn't gut the Tribune to the point where we don't have them really being on every little thing, you know, um, they're in court, they're covering stuff that we don't have the capacity to cover. We do the best we can with like 10 full-time reporters, but um, we need more than that. There are so, this is a massive city. There are so many stories to tell. And um, in terms of dividing people, I think I completely agree with Greg, turn off TV news. I tell my mom this all the time. Um, it's really, it just creates anger and division. And I think just, connecting to your local newsroom, uh, print newsroom or the tribe or digital newsroom, I think you're going to be a happier person. You're going to figure out what your neighbors are really thinking and feeling and not feeling so alienated by um, people screaming on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Since we're talking about TV news, let me just add. (laughs) I do say turn off TV news. Um, I find their presence to be when I talk about extractive journalism, that's what I'm talking about. Um, even when it comes to the helicopters flying a- above, which is triggering PTSD in Black communities, um, I'm talking about popping into communities with, with large cameras um, on the worst days of Black people's lives and putting a camera in their face while they're crying and wailing. Um, we need uh, deeper, more community-centric journalism. And if TV is not going to be willing to put boots on the ground and really build relationships, it is not okay to just parachute into communities. And you can be local news and parachute into community because it happens. So, uh, so yeah, TV news, I think, could, could do a much better job. And including when it comes to just, like, them aggregating stories from um, local digital media sources like Black Club Shy and things like that, and and also going on the web and scouring, you know, uh, community members for their for their footage and their coverage of things, and being like, hey, can we put this on the news? Because because we get that all the time, and our answer to them is, unless you're going to allow a tribe representative to go on the news to contextualize this clip because we were there, like, no, you cannot use this clip. So. Yeah, I think I think supporting local journalism, but also just like boots on the ground grassroots journalism is key to giving them getting a more fuller picture of of Chicago. You know, I, I, I do think one way that the media has changed recently and it's for the better is is you have people being more responsive to the fact that it is it is not OK um, to do the drive-by type of reporting that some places do, you know, like if you're going to go to, um, to, to try to be less exploitive of issues like crime, you know, um, where you, you see some contextless reporting. We have a reporter, Pete Nikias, who did a phenomenal story recently, super long in-depth talking to the family of, in, in a, in a homicide, you know, and, and just going in depth to understand it versus, you know, I remember when I used to work, um, weekend breaking news shifts, you'd show up at a scene where something terrible had happened and the, the TV news people barely say hello to the, to, hi, I'm sorry. Can I talk to you and stick, a stick the camera in their face and say, Hey, can we put you on the news? You know, I know that, that your brother just got killed, but you know, we want to put you on the news without, 
even some human uh, touches. Not, not everybody is like that, and I don't want to say every, uh, but but as a news media ecosystem in Chicago, I think in general we're more thoughtful. Nationally, you see people doing less things like putting up mugshot galleries so that people can gawk at people who have uh, mugshots up and just like make fun of them with no context whatsoever. Um, so I, I do think in general the media is being more responsive to to people. And I, I know personally whether, you know, if somebody's got a beef with a story I wrote, um, as long as it's not like the same three or four racist people that email me and Jen and Morgan every day, which uh, Jen posted a t- uh, an email she got from a guy last week that I'm like, hey, I recognize that name. He emails <laughs> me after everything I write, no matter what it is. He's, uh, I blocked him a long time ago because uh, whatever, you know, but, but they come through. So I, I do think that the media is evolving to be more responsive, whether it's big papers or websites or smaller publications. And I think that's in part due to social media too, right? Like social media is creating new media trends all the time. Um, But we can call out uh, the media and critique the media publicly and that could trend and get their attention. So, I mean, I personally ran out to uh, German media companies who tried to parachute into Chicago because people told them to contact the tribe. And so I had conversations, extensive conversations about how much they knew about sh- black Chicago before they came into our community, which they didn't know a lot and didn't have any black journalists. And so, yeah, I really got a chance to tell them about themselves and they decided that they were leaving the next day. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'd like to credit myself for that, but I hope that parachuting media is a dying trend um, because I'm just like, look, if you want to tell Chicago's story, great. Okay. Like there's a lot of wonderful things happening in Chicago and a lot of great local journalists doing it already. So why don't you just create a partnership with one of the many news organizations here and co-publish one of our stories? So I hope that that's going to be a media trend moving forward. All right, so let's uh, turn to some of the questions we're getting from our viewers today, our participants. Uh, Lisa Dieter asks the question of all of you. I hear such conflicting reports about what happens during protests and marches. How do I know what sources to trust? Even WBEZ's coverage seems suspect lately. Anybody? that's a hard I one. Yeah, it's a hard one because there are so many people. We've talked. We've been talking about this in our newsroom a ton. Um, we will have a reporter on the scene, but if there's thousands of people or hundreds of people, they're seeing one perspective. They're not seeing the entire protest. They're not seeing, you know, everything happening. So yeah, one reporter can have a completely different experience than a hundred protesters did. Um, and with so much going on, and I mean, this weekend alone, there was the protest that was slated to shut down the Dan Ryan. We had a reporter there and then we had a reporter downtown, but there were like three different protests happening at the same time. Um, we only have so many people. I mean, news organizations don't have that many people to cover all of these things. And um, we, you get, it's really hard to do a good job because the police are saying one thing, the protesters are saying one thing, Video from one angle shows one story. Video from another angle shows another. It's really difficult. So I think the best thing to do is just present, you know, give people who are there a platform to tell their stories, um, show 
you know, as much as you can. I'm hopeful that the police department releases some body camera video. Um, they had a lot of criticism about the video that was edited that they released over the weekend. You know, we'd love to see both sides of that. We, we don't just want to see the side that, you know, appears to show one thing. We want to see the whole picture. So it's, it's a really difficult thing to cover. Um, I think we're all trying our best. And it's also something that, you know, this is all happening during a pandemic. We're learning on the fly here. And I think anyone who pretends to know the answer on how to the best way to do this is, is not being um, truthful because I think we're all struggling and listening um, and trying to be as, as, you know, accurate as humanly possible. But I, I think that people have their preconceived notions about people on the ground, whether that's the police or whether that's the protesters. And they are going into these stories with those biases and they get angry if that bias is not confirmed. Okay. Um, anybody else before we move on to another question? Yeah, I just want to say that reporters are tired. This has been going on for a long time. So we got slammed with coronavirus. Um, updates every day, changing information every day, and then the uprising started. And um, there's a lot of pressure to put out information quickly because it's such a high tense situation. So not only do you have to like diligently seek the truth, but you often have to check your sources multiple times for updates on stories because we get new information all the time. And like I said, again, for the tribe, we um, we're often going to wait, um, interview a lot of people, see a lot of different footage before we put out the story, because we know that narratives can sh shift and change. And we also don't look at the police necessarily as a, the official source. We know that uh, the Chicago De Police Department lies and has lied in the past um, and has done um, unconstitutional harm to black people. And that's not just me saying that, the Department of Justice said that. So we don't take their word for it and may not necessarily publish what the police says right away until they show evidence. And so another way you can uh, diligently seek truth is by being an active community member and going out there to yourself and, uh, and observing it. Um, and that may actually help you get an idea of what's going on in the city. Yeah, I think I think my colleague spoke well on this. Uh, there's 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 tremendous logistical challenges just because of how how large a protest can be, and one thing happens somewhere. Uh, but you know, everybody uh, who's covering it is trying to get at the truth of what happened. You know, and so sometimes though, uh, sometimes on things like this, there it, it can be subjective. Where you know, you could see. Um, the, the police department obviously put out a pretty selectively edited uh, clip of what happened last weekend. But you can see a scenario where the truth is, yeah, there was some provocation on the officers, but then they overreacted. Uh, some of that, um, you know, some of that is, is you got to piece it together and then try to make sense of it. And I, I thought the Tribune story from Sunday's protest where we had a reporter out there for 14 hours um, – got at some of the messiness of it and just, just sort of putting it all out. This happened, this happened, this happened, you know, uh, talked to as wide a range of people. And again, for, for a consumer of news, um, read the Tribune report and then read all the other reports that are out there and try to make sense of them because everybody can't be everywhere at once. Was that the headline that said 17 officers hurt? That was the first headline, which, you know, got changed. It was something like, 17 officers hurt, um, a certain number of protesters arrested. I don't think we had a figure on how many protesters hurt. 
Um, but where did that figure of 17 officers come from? The police? I, think that, I think so, but I, I, I wasn't involved in that reporting. So, like I said about the police as official sources, um, as the media, we are, we well, I don't come from the you know J school tradition. Um, Tiffany, my co-founder, did, but uh, the police will say seventeen officers hurt. Um, we have not seen body cameras yet. We don't have a hurt a number of how many community members are hurt. So um, that too is a narrative that was given to us directly from the police. Okay, so we have to not only realize like how things are reported, but like where the sources are coming from. And you have to be critically thinking about those sources and whether they um, have an agenda as well. So. No doubt. No doubt. Let me uh, me ask uh, this question from Allison. I believe it's Angelone. I'm sorry if that's not quite right. What forces for good or bad do you see Twitter exerting on the media landscape? Well, Jen? you know, where Greg, Jen, where it gets bad is um, where people people start to cable newsify it. Where they're like, "Where give me give me what I expect, give me what I want, give me what fits my preconceived notion." And if you don't, I'm mad at you because of this and that. Uh, where social media can be good is um, it quickly. It's a very quick way to get people informed. It's a very good way to see a variety of opinions. It's also a bubble. And it's also uh, a thing where you want to watch out for because people um, people go on there to to, uh, to to opinionate, you know. But it can also be good because you will see some. Uh, um, it, it does allow people to raise questions in real time about how things are covered, which can be useful for all of us. Where you know we might post a story and somebody comes back um, with a critique. And you're like, actually, that's a decent point. That's a good point. Let's work on that. So it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Jen? I, I think, Greg, saying it's a bubble, I, I actually, this is something I've talked about to my reporters since DNA Info. Um, only 22% of Americans use Twitter. Um, it's overwhelmingly younger people and college-educated people. Um, it is also a small, small, small percentage of people who read our stories. So I think that journalists spend a lot of time uh, fighting in the Twitter, Twitter universe and not listening to the people on the ground and who are in, are in their communities. I think that, that there needs to be less reliance on Twitter for shaping a narrative um, just because it is a bubble. Um, it is very toxic. It's, I mean, it could be good in so many ways and it's, it makes me laugh all the time and I'm, I'm guilty of going on there and, you know, uh, having fun every once in a while, but I also feel like it just adds so much negativity and uh, stress and nastiness. Um, I I would like, you know, journalists in general to pull back on, on their use of Twitter. I think it's bad for all of our mental health, but also I don't think it's necessarily reflective of the communities that we're covering with only 22% of the U.S. population even using it. Mm-hmm. Morgan, do you have any thoughts on that? I would agree. Um, other ways to reach audiences 
are uh, well the tribe we just launched a youtube page um youtube is the most popular platform by far trump's facebook um so um we definitely try to meet our audience where they are a lot of people use youtube as its own search engine for news um so we're trying to reach that audience um we're also we also do community engagement activities like panels and things like that to get feedback from the community because i would agree that Twitter is its own bubble and I do a lot of muting because at the end of the day, I'm accountable to Black Chicago, the community that I'm serving. Okay, uh, here's another question. Um, how does an individual or an organization build credibility as a legitimate voice of the community to be included in a story, in a given story, that is what qualifies a person or a group as a as a commenter or a source i think for block speaking for block club um I, the way we do things is our reporters are in the neighborhood so they're at all the community meetings they check in with the aldermen they check in with the neighborhood organizations that are just the most active in the community whether that's doing uh, resource fairs in the neighborhood food giveaways um, if they're active at, in, you know, anti-violence marches or a church that's very prominent, um, our reporters are expected to know these people and have them on speed dial and check in with them weekly, even if it's just what's going on, how are you? Um, that's how you find what's happening in the community. Um, and I think it's, it becomes fairly obvious when you're reporting on an area. And, and this is why I love our model so much, um, because people just over time, you're going to really learn who's who in the neighborhood, who um, can give you the the rundown on the LSC meeting that happened last night, who can talk about the CAPS meeting. And um, it, it's just, you know, forming those relationships, showing up every day, showing up is, is the most important thing. And I think that's when you learn who credible sources are. And you build that trust when people in the neighborhood read it and say, okay, I trust that person. Like, they know what they're talking about. Like they understand the context of the situation. They're listening to all these people in my neighborhood. Um, and I think that's how we've been able to build a loyal audience is just showing up and talking to the right people and really investing in knowing the neighborhood. And you're not gonna get it right all the time. And you're gonna mess up and you're gonna quote somebody who uh, the neighbors didn't want you to talk to, but that's all, it's all part of the process. And it's all part about being a member of the community while reporting on it. Okay, uh, this one from Matthew Topic. How have you found the Lightfoot administration compared to the Emanuel administration when it comes to transparency, period? Well, as I, you know, as that's, that's my primary job is uh, uh, the Lightfoot administration. You know, there are ways that they're good and then there are ways that they're not. You know, there's there's uh, um, an interesting bit of um, hypocrisy where they pass the they pass a law with uh, to allow them to release inspector general reports. And they carved it out in such a way that they can hide things like the Eddie Johnson report. That's uh, that's astounding. There's things that they do where they're defending a lawsuit. Um against against the city for holding uh, meetings uh, with all the aldermen on the phone with Mayor Lightfoot, which they're saying wasn't a violation of transparency. Uh, 
Matt is, uh, I believe Matt is the, the law, the lawyer in that case who is suing the administration. Um, there's, there's times that, uh, you know, there's times that you would think that they would give you an answer on something and they make you do a FOIA, um, which is unfortunate. So, you know, it's a government agency. It's a big bureaucracy. Certainly the police department is, is not much better on FOIA than, uh, um, than it used to be under ROM. You know, I actually sent a nasty, uh, uh, nasty gram to, to CPD FOIA who had been late and late and late to me on a, on a relatively simple, smaller FOIA. And I said, you know what, this is, this is why you guys get sued all the time. And this is why you guys cost taxpayers so much money. And at some point you guys have to get your act together. And lo and behold, a week later, they finally got me back something I'd been asking for. But the uh, the CPD is no better, which has been a long problem for transparency. And I don't necessarily see the Lightfoot administration on their case saying to get better. So that's a fault of the Lightfoot administration. So it's kind of a mixed bag where, um, you know, I, I find the mayor's team to the mayor's FOIA team to be responsive but slow, which is better than you know, um, some government agencies that I deal with, uh, in fulfilling FOIAs. So it's all kind of a work in progress, but I don't necessarily, um, you know, is, is it, is it the most transparent and the best place in the world on transparency? Definitely not. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go ahead to another question. Thanks for that, Greg. This comes from Thomas Johnson. Comment and a question. Uh, comment. I still trust and watch the first 15 minutes of World News Tonight at 5.30 p.m. for all the major headlines. Question. With all organizations and their respective agendas, how do you find balance in complicated stories like the protesters, police response, looters? Morgan, you want to kick off on that one? like okay finding balance i feel like that's another like objectivity question um (laughs) but it's really about for me thinking about impact okay so before the tribe puts out a story and we do this with every single story we think about what is the ripple effect that this narrative is going to take in the world how are people going to take our words use them for their respective agendas. And so we think really, really hard about how we frame a narrative because we don't want a narrative that we put out to uh, spark more harm in the world, you know? And I think that uh, when I talk about balance, I'm thinking about just, again, deepening narratives. I'm thinking about like, because I care and love black people and I want to heal Chicago, I'm thinking of narratives that that deal with the root causes, not so much who is to blame, whose fault is this? Let's identify and punish this person narratives. Um, I'm thinking about um, how do we get here? Okay. And so that frames the types of questions that we ask and um, and our approach to journalism. So I don't know. That's how that's how we approach balance. I'm not sure if if other people have things to add. I think, I think that, that yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, no, you go. You go. You go first. Uh, no, I was just saying um, we 
are not going to let someone spout off about somebody and not ask for their response. Like we're going to, if somebody says, oh, Lightfoot did this and this and this, we're going to ask the Lightfoot administration to respond. I think that that is a really like basic way of providing balance. And that's just not just balance. It's just like being, I don't know, um, accountable um, and making sure that you're not spreading misinformation, which is so dangerous right now. So I think just talking to as many people as possible, um, not ignoring that feeling in your gut when something sounds a little weird or um, like something sounds a little off. Uh, We always tell our reporters also like, don't tweet it until you're for sure. Like don't tweet out bad information. Like that's the worst thing you can do is as a journalist, lose your accountability is, is have to backtrack and be like, Oh, I was totally wrong on this. It just, it's, it happens to everyone, especially in breaking news situations. It's really difficult, but just taking a moment, like it won't kill us if we get our news alert on this out 10 minutes later, if we're right, that's, that's what matters, the truth. So we can't all be that fast. We don't, you know, and I think that that's the, the, we're kind of in this like crappy situation, frankly, because people depend on the media to be there right away. I want everything right now. I want a fully fleshed out story in five minutes. You can't do a fully fleshed out story in five minutes. It's just not possible to responsibly report something that quickly, but the expectations are way up here. So I think that there just needs to be a, um, what we we're, we try to be transparent with our readers. So in our newsletter every morning, we talk about what, how we reported this story, um, what we did to get it out. And I think that letting people in on the process is really helpful. And um, for people just understanding where you're coming from and why something is a certain way. Right. And re- being really thoughtful about all of the voices that you include in a story. but Because, of course, if you only include one or two voices, you're only going to get a very narrow view of what has happened. Okay. Yeah, you know, and the Tribune has the broadest audience of, of uh, any of the media outlets on here. You know, we have a we, – we, it, it's um, – we we try to balance uh, first first you know more important than objectivity and and uh, and balance is truth you know so you want to get at the truth where there's dispute where there's debate where there's controversy and nuance which of course is a lot of the time uh, you want to get um, different voices and make sure that that different things um, are played into it it's actually a really challenging. Uh, Thing. You know, I'd almost like to take somebody who has questions about how do you keep a story balanced? How are you fair to people? To, uh, you know, I don't know what the journalistic equivalent of a ride along would be, uh, but it would be nice to be able to do that sometime and show people because it's, it's not always as easy as it may seem, you know, but um, but, you know, we first you have to strive for truth and then uh, where there's um not necessarily an objective truth. You want to be thoughtful about what you're putting out there. Um, so I think that's that's a broader issue that we all work at every day. Okay, I've got two more questions here, and then I'm going to ask you all to share some closing thoughts. Um, actually, th- there's a couple of questions that are related, so let me see if I can summarize. Um, so we know that... Um, corporate marketing dollars, giving dollars, philanthropy, individual charitable giving priorities are stretched in a lot of directions, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. So many needs out there. 
Um, and we also know that um, there are a lot of independent nonprofit news outlets, far more than we had before, uh, coming online, uh, putting pressure perhaps on already dwindling philanthropic dollars. What does that mean for nonprofit news moving forward, particularly outlets uh, online? And certainly, Greg, you're welcome to participate in the answer as well. <laughs> uh, Morgan or Jen? The tribe actually isn't a nonprofit, so Jen. <laughs> so Jen. Yeah, so we actually are seventy percent reader funded. So we're uh, our reliance on foundations is it's a much smaller piece of the pie than other nonprofit newsrooms in town, and that's for a good reason. We um, we knew that that readers would be the most dependable. We saw that kind of coming. That there are a lot of different nonprofits in the world and. Um, it's, it's a tough game. And, you know, when in the foundation world, things change like the weather, like you're, they're investing one year in a lot of media and then another year they have other priorities. And obviously coronavirus is extremely important and we don't want to take money away from that. Um, but also we are, I think just being honest with our readers and saying, Hey, we need you right now, um, has been helpful and being creative. Like Morgan said, not having just one revenue stream. So we do sponsorships. We, before COVID, we did events. Um, we actually had an event with the hideout, a virtual event last month that brought in, we donated all the proceeds, but it brought in, you know, a few thousand dollars um, last summer when the story of the summer was Chance the Snapper. Don't we all miss that? Um, we sold more than $100,000 worth of merchandise, uh, which was incredible. And we also have um, 100,000 newsletter subscribers, um, which our newsletters are, we have a free daily like morning newsletter and a COVID newsletter. And then we have hyper-local newsletters for the neighborhoods. Um, all of our South and West Side newsletters are free to everyone but our, we have other specialized newsletters that are for members only. So I think providing, you know, some sort, some sort of reward for people giving um, money, kind of like a freemium model is, has been the, the direction we're headed in. And it's been um, good so far, just, just showing up. If you show up, if you have reporters on the ground and you're telling stories that matter to people, they're gonna miss you when you're gone and people will pay for it um, if they can. And our goal is to have enough people cover for the people who can't pay for it. So that's, that's kind of our bet and we're hoping um, it works out. And there's a lot of money in the world. I mean, there's a lot of billionaires in the world. So I think that we need to prioritize um, our democracy, which is made possible by a free press. So hopefully that money won't run out. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on to the last question and then we can do some summary comments from each of you. And this question is directed to everyone. How can freelance journalists and others better assist or work with editors online or otherwise um, to participate in covering the news? I'm like, I feel like that's a pretty straightforward one. I mean, we take pitches. <laughs> uh, you literally can just send a pitch to info at the tribes.com. Um, if you're out there documenting this time, trust me, we need documentation and our newsrooms are tired. Um, so if you are out there and you have photos, you have video, you could probably pitch that to just about anyone and someone will pay for it. So 
um, yeah, now is a time to record history. This is a critical time in, in not only just like local history, but like national history. So yes, please, if you are writing, uh, documenting, continue to do that and pitch to newsrooms. I agree completely. Um, and also, if you just are born and raised in a neighborhood in Chicago, we, we're really looking for people who know their community so well that they have a story that other people wouldn't be able to tell from that neighborhood. So we really want to hear from Chicagoans um, living in neighborhoods that aren't covered as much. Um, so newsroom at blockclubshy.org or Jen at blockclubshy.org and we take pitches every day. I think just being dependable as a freelancer is the big thing. Like, honestly, if like somebody pitches me and then never turns something in, I'm going to be less likely to green light that pitch the next time it comes in. So, um, I know it's a tough game being a freelancer and it's, it's rough, but we, um, we welcome pitches and we pay quickly, um, and love hearing voices from all over the city. Yeah, you know, it's like with anything as a journalist, you know, you you have to go, you know, develop expertise and subjects and in skills and work on them. And and uh, that's where the value is, you know, in in knowing a community and knowing a, um, a beat and knowing a subject. And so um, that would be general freelancer advice. Okay. Uh, if each of you could share with our viewers audience today in one minute each what would you like our our participants today uh, to take away from this what should we be thinking about we'll have to start <laughs> i nominate uh morgan origin <laughs> i nominate you morgan <laughs> Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I guess the theme of today is media trends. And I would say, look at the children. I feel like uh, media, we've, we've gotten ourselves in trouble by uh, dispelling the next generation and, and hardening ourselves to the new technology or platforms um, that young people use. And so, again, when I think about the tribe recently starting a YouTube page, it's because I'm looking at my four-year-old nephew who has favorite shows that he can already navigate to on YouTube. And I'm thinking, how can I reach him? You know, like with the boomer generation um, leaving us soon, I'm thinking about what is going to be, who's going to fill in the gap, you know, like how did they consume news and how does that differ from the youth coming up? And like, we have to be thinking ahead to how to reach audiences that we're not currently reaching. Um, so news is going to change and we have to be able to adapt and to meet people where they're at. So I encourage all newsrooms to think creatively about millennials and younger. I'm a millennial who does not have cable who watches everything on an apple tv and i don't have to engage with tv news so things are going to change very very rapidly and we have to do our job to build trust with communities and and help them be informed so that we can um, create a more civically engaged community 
Thank you. Greg, Jen? Can I nominate Jen this time? <laughs> <laughs> I see where this is going. Yeah. Um, I, my one ask for everyone, and I am like a broken record on this, is please think before you share stuff on the internet. It's becoming increasingly difficult to do our jobs um, because we spend so much time knocking down fake news. Like misinformation spreads like wildfire, whether that's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I don't use Snapchat, but I, I don't know about misinformation on Snapchat or TikTok, if that's a thing. But um I need to be more in with the youth, as Morgan said. But every time you share a story or share something that is not confirmed, um, you are taking away from reporting that could be done on something else. Like we spend so much time knocking down rumors from Facebook groups. And these rumors are shared thousands of times, thousands. Um, and they're actually harmful. I mean, we saw with the shooting in Inglewood, there was a ton of misinformation being spread. Um, that that's harmful. It's harmful to people on the ground who might get, you know, if the police are being told something, they might react a certain way and that might not be true. So everything you're sharing, and I think is, is both sides of the aisle are really guilty of this. Um, just reacting without thinking it through and checking your sources is just, it's just being a bad citizen right now. Like we need people to be you know, Google that headline. If it if it seems like a crazy story, maybe Google it before sharing it, and you might see a big Snopes article on how it's not true. Um, just just think before sharing, and you're going to be a better neighbor and a better consumer of news, and you'll help the the newsrooms existing in the city out a lot by um, doing that. That's such a good point, <laughs> Greg. Any final thoughts? Well, I think uh, in general, anybody who has um, anybody who follows me on social media has seen me talk about the existential threat that the Tribune faces from its corporate shareholder, Alton Global Capital, um, Evil Hedge Fund Incorporated. Um, you know, and so they're uh, they're um, you know one of the things though that I always like to emphasize as I talk about uh, our union's concerns about our ownership is, you know, we need people to subscribe. And so people should be subscribing uh, to the Tribune. You know, that that's one plug I would make. But also to to every media outlet that, that they can. I think in general, if, um, if you have disposable income, um, you should be paying for media somewhere. It doesn't necessarily have to be the Tribune or Black Club or the Sun-Times or any specific place. But if you're not paying for news somewhere and you do have some disposable income, uh, you're part of the problem that, that, uh, you're, you know, you're not informing yourself enough and you're, you know, you're, we're going to have a hellscape in 10 years where 10, 20 years where it's only Facebook that keeps us informed, which I promise would not be good. So, um, so I think in general, uh, supporting media with money is one of the most important things to do and to engage with media. When you're mad at the Tribune, uh, email uh, the reporter, email the editor, email whoever you feel you need to interview, uh, who you, whoever you have a beef with. And that's true for other outlets. But I think engagement and uh, subscriptions are very important, not just for the publications, but for the informational ecosystem that we all live in. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, Morgan, Jen, 
Greg, thank you for participating today. It was a great panel. Really welcomed your thoughts. Uh, as uh, as is our tradition at City Club of Chicago, we are uh, giving each of you a complimentary one-year membership to the club. Uh, please promise you'll come back and speak again. And I'd like to echo Jen's earlier comment, hey, we need you right now. So uh, for those of you who've enjoyed City Club of Chicago programming over the years uh, and in this time that we are providing online programming, again, we're a 501c3 nonprofit and we welcome um, donations, every bit helps. I'm Anne-Marie St. Germain. Thank you very much, everyone, again, and have a great day.